Chapter Thirty of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Thirty. With the dawn of morning came returning consciousness to Colonel St. John. He raised his head and looked with dazed, bewildered eyes at the chair with its few dingy bottles, at the stove, now cold and odorless, and at the glove still clenched in his hand. His first sensation was one of physical discomfort as he stretched out his fingers, moving them with difficulty, for they were numb with the cold. There was a strange, light feeling in his head, while a heavy weight seemed to have settled upon his chest. Had he been ill? The glove fell from his nerveless hand, and he picked it up stiffly, looking absently about for its mate. The sight of it was distasteful to him. He wondered why. It was a very ordinary glove. He felt dimly that something was lacking from the little bare room. Something had vanished which should have been present, and shrank from the emptiness oppressed by the heaviness of space. Why was he on the floor? Colonel St. John struggled to rise and essayed to walk, but his feet seemed reluctant to perform their duty, and he tottered uncertainly, catching at the wall to preserve his balance. He must hurry, that thought was paramount, for he was going somewhere, and it was time he was off. Resting his forehead against the window-pane, thick with the dust of many seasons, he looked through the broken shutter out into the dull grey of the winter's morning. Far in the distance, across the mall, he saw the black smoke curling upward from an engine crossing the Potomac. Why, certainly, he knew now. He was going away somewhere. He must hurry, or he would be too late. His hat and coat, where were they? He must hasten. Stumbling blindly forward, he made his way into the hall and down the stairs, clutching at the banisters for support and making all possible speed. I will be late, he said. Late! The train won't wait. Suddenly he paused, with shaking knees and ashen face. Directly in his path lay the mattress. He recognized the rip in the side, and with recognition came a flood of memory, unwelcome, obtrusive, and overwhelming. The old man stood as one petrified. At last he raised his hand and pointed a trembling finger at the mattress at his feet. "'It's empty!' he cried shrilly. "'Empty!' And the house reverberated with the sound of his voice. "'Empty!' returned the rooms and passages of the lower floor. "'Empty!' echoed down the stairway from the vacant space above. Colonel St. John uttered an inarticulate sound and fled up the stairs, away from the mattress with its unpleasant suggestiveness. At the entrance to his room, he stepped upon something soft and recoiled violently. It was only the glove he had dropped as he started to leave the house, Lindhurst's glove. He remembered it now. Broad day, he said as the sun cast a sickly ray through the broken shutter. Broad day, and no doubt a watch set upon the house. The old man sank into the chair opposite the table and rested his head upon the unfinished drawing. Now and then he shivered and glanced towards the daylight and the freedom outside the dusty glass. 
For a long time he sat motionless, oblivious to the gradually increasing cold. He entertained no doubt that Lee was dead, and the punishment for murder was hanging. Colonel St. John felt in his pocket, and produced a small vial, removed the cork, and sniffed at the contents. It was nearly full. Had he the strength to put it to his lips? Very slowly he replaced the cork and returned the vial to his pocket. It is when life is most filled with darkness and terror that mankind appears to cling to it most tenaciously, perhaps through some idea of future reparation, perhaps through dread of the unknown. The day wore on. Colonel St. John felt the chill and cold of the place reaching his heart and looked longingly at the kerosene stove and the full oil can in the corner. Dare he light it? It smells, he said, seeking some other means of warmth. The damn thing smells. Wrapping himself in a blanket from the cot, he waited for the day to pass. His watch had stopped and he had no means of marking the time, but each minute seemed a lifetime and the hours spread themselves into eternity. Was this a day? It chanced that no curious visitors investigated the old house, and he thought resentfully that it must therefore surely be under police surveillance. Sooner or later he must be discovered, or die from cold and starvation. Colonel St. John again felt in his pocket, and his fingers touched the small vial, lingering thoughtfully a moment, and were then rapidly withdrawn. It is given to some men to drink of the cup of dissipation while it bubbles with pleasure, sparkles with brilliancy, and intoxicates with the exhilaration of success, then to pause and watch the bubbles fade, the sparkle disappear, and the exhilaration pass away, leaving in its place flatness and a distaste for further draughts of like character. Others, however, drink thirstily, draining it to the last drop, and finding in its bitter dregs the fire of sorrow and the ashes of humiliation. Colonel St. John, dumbly expecting he knew not what, realized he had reached the bottom of the cup and cursed the day he raised it to his lips. He did more. He cursed the life he had lived and the life to come, the father who begot him and the mother who gave him birth. He cursed the day he came to America, the night Count Vladimir sought him at Jackson City, and the work he had done for the Russians since that date. It was he who held him, Albert St. John, in a grip of iron, and who had indirectly brought about the impending crisis. The old man looked at his shaking hand, and wished it might have withered before it drew the plans his master demanded. Suddenly he paused, and his lip lifted in an unpleasant smile. Opening a drawer in the table, he produced them, one after another. Today he was to have delivered them. Rapidly he looked them over. They were complete in every detail, except the one upon the table yet unfinished, and which he added to the collection, tearing it from beneath the thumbtacks viciously, as though anxious to deface it as much as possible. Colonel St. John, the bundle under his arm, again sought the lower floor, going down deeper still, into the basement with its brick vaults, and into the old kitchen, with the great stone fireplace occupying one end, and looking capable of generous hospitality, had it been so disposed. 
In the fireplace he deposited his burden, checking the papers off one by one with satisfaction. They comprised the defences of the principal seaports of the country, and were traced with no small skill and accuracy. There were also papers of explanation accompanying them, and other data of importance to the government. He produced a match and struck it on the hearthstone. It flickered and would not burn. But he struck another, shielding it with his hand and nursing the flame carefully, for it was his last. The match flamed up quickly and went out, leaving the cellar dark and clammy with the penetrating damp. Back again, up the stairs to his room. He would get another match. So full of one idea was the old man that he almost forgot the reason for the act or the motive actuating the desire for revenge upon Count Vladimir, but the sight of the mattress in the lower hall again brought with it the flood of memory. It was murder for which he was being hunted, and the punishment was hanging. Colonel St. John forgot the papers in the fireplace, forgot Count Vladimir and the desire for revenge, remembering only David Lee and Lyndhurst. Lyndhurst, who had that other life also checked against him, and who had left his glove in token that he would return. Faint and sick from cold and lack of food, Colonel St. John cowered beneath the blanket and watched the fading of the light through the broken shutter. Now and then a board creaked loudly, and he shrank further into the corner, expecting the opening of a door. Now and then a rat ran across the attic overhead, squealing in angry dispute with its fellows. And now and then came other sounds, faint rustlings and indistinct murmurs like the sighing of the wind. A rat in a trap, he said, taken like vermin to be exterminated. He felt for the little vial and drew it out. The light grew dimmer and failed entirely. Another day gone, another night arrived. Die like a man, counseled an inner voice, not like a felon. It's got to come, die like a man. It's got to come, he repeated. The end of all things, the leap in the dark, the putting away of mortality and assuming immortality. Yes, it had to come. It had come through him to David Lee and to Hertford. It had also come strangely, mysteriously, with incredible swiftness to another, a woman. There had been a vacancy in the harem of the Khedive, and no questions asked. A favorite had vanished. Such things had happened before. Colonel St. John had vanished also, taking with him the opals. The game had been dangerous, and the price high. Well, since it came some time or other to every one, why should a little sooner or later matter? And Hertford did it himself with a pistol. Colonel St. John wished he had a pistol. It was so soon over. Like a man, he said, raising the vial. I was a man once. The little bottle fell to the floor with a splintering of glass as Colonel St. John drew the blanket closer and prepared to wait. There were noises again, but they did not trouble him. The boards creaked and the rats squealed unobserved, for out of the darkness shadowy figures approached and bent over him, the room was alive with voices long silent, and Colonel St. John listened to them dreamily. But they were very welcome, and he tried to tell them so, but they did not seem to hear him. His head swam and his limbs felt numb. 
"'I believe,' he said politely, "'it's very rude, I know, but I believe I'll take a nap.' The night crept on. Again the moon rose and flooded the city with its white light. In the midst of the old garden a figure stood irresolute, a woman, who held her cloak tightly, clutching it convulsively, as though she found comfort in its warmth, and wished to wrap it even closer around her slender form. Now and then she advanced a few steps with many an apprehensive glance towards the upper windows of the grim old house. At last the garden was crossed, and she put a trembling hand upon the rusty latch. At the same instant the front door opened and shut with a quick decision very different from the hesitating creaking of the hinges of its companion in the rear. The odor of cigar smoke filled the hall, and a man's voice muttered something as he paused to strike a match. The woman leaned against the wall, her hands extended in the darkness. "'I'm too late,' she said. "'Too late.' Suddenly she gathered her skirts together, set her teeth firmly, and began the ascent of the old back stairs, feeling her way timidly, but moving swiftly with the decision of divine purpose. It was a race now between the man and woman, for he also walked with the directness of one familiar with the objective point, up the front stairs, past the window on the landing looking out over the moonlit garden, past the second floor, with its open doors leading into vacant rooms eloquent in their silence, and up again to the third floor. Upon the landing he paused, for his quick ears caught a sound unexpected and apparently disconcerting, and the hand extended towards the caretaker's door hesitated as he drew farther into the shadow. She had reached the top now, and stepped out into the upper hall with a gasp of mingled fear and relief. The darkness of the back stairs had been black indeed, and light of any kind was preferable. The hood of her cloak had fallen back, and a ray of moonlight shone upon her upturned face, steadfast in its purpose, and pitiful in its unconscious appeal. It touched the flashing jewel in her hair, her brow, her cheeks, her quivering lips, but left in the shadow of the black lashes blue eyes dark with pain, and misty with unshed tears. Estelle, he cried, you? Here alone. What does this mean? Ah, she said, it was you. I did not know. I heard someone. What are you doing here? he repeated. I came, she replied, indicating the inner room by a motion of her hand, to bring him money, to help him get away. I waited until night because the darkness was safer for him. "'You are in evening dress?' "'I came from the British Embassy,' she said simply. "'I went there to-night alone. It was easy to get away, and required no explanations. But you, why are you here?' His face darkened ominously. "'I came,' he said grimly, "'to threaten. He has tricked me with a bundle of useless papers, and has in his possession others of value to me. I came to claim my property.' The caretaker's door swung slowly open, propelled by an invisible force. Back it went, back against the wall, exposing the bare little room with the figure of the old man wrapped in his quilt upon the floor. With an irrepressible shudder, Estelle touched the Russian's arm. "'Who opened it?' she whispered. "'Who opened it?' Colonel St. John stirred uneasily. 
he felt he must for some reason make an effort so he opened his eyes unwillingly and did not at once close them the room was lighted by a candle and he even thought he detected the odor of a kerosene stove but he was in berlin at his salon so that was impossible count vladimir had produced the candle and endeavored to induce the stove to burn but such details mattered not to colonel st john he must greet the lady in the shining satin gown how do you do madame he remarked feebly i am delighted you were able to be with us father she cried don't you know me it's estelle estelle he repeated vaguely yes estelle then he suddenly sat upright and clutched her hand i must get away he said rapidly clear away estelle my dear it's murder for god's sake help me give me money it's murder i tell you murder and a st john was never hung no father no she said soothingly he is alive mr lee is not dead but he is very ill i've come to bring you money and to help you his features contracted and he fell back helpless the pain he gasped the pain i'm dying estelle dying quick she said imperatively over her shoulder a doctor i must have a doctor but count vladimir shook his head he held in his hand the fragments of the broken vial upon one of which the label was distinct too late he said quietly the poison has done its work and all the doctors in the universe could not help him now in a few minutes the paroxysm will be over and he will not suffer by the by they will be more frequent his mind will wander and then will come the end and i came to warn him she said bitterly to help him too late like all my good deeds too late bring a doctor i demand it he may be able to give some relief but the russian did not move i know the poison well he returned coolly i have seen men die of it before i will not leave you to fetch a doctor here i will not have you associated with this scandal see he is better he wants to speak with you she knelt upon the floor and pressed the gray head to her breast quite suddenly she remembered some childish ailment when he had carried her restless and feverish room to room soothing and cheering her with the patience of a woman father she said father i drank it he said eagerly i wanted to die like a man estelle like a man yes she replied brokenly yes you'll be safe from me in future he continued quite safe estelle i have not been a good father but i was proud of you my dear he paused and his eye fell upon the russian who advanced slowly is that count vladimir he demanded have nothing to do with him estelle he is a dangerous man hard and cruel he's brought me to this he'll bring you to worse in russia there are women again his features contracted and he sank back with a groan count vladimir bent over him and put his finger on his wrist the pulse is weak he remarked his eyes are dim he will not suffer much more estelle whispered the old man faintly he must not have them the papers i put them are you there estelle the plans of fortifications you know 
He shall not have them. I put them. Yes, she said anxiously. Yes, father, where? The old fireplace, he gasped, in the basement. The match went out. Ah, the pain! It is over, she said sadly. But the heavy lids lifted again, and the eyes stared fixedly at the flaming opal at her throat. The price of blood, he cried, raising a shaking hand. The price of blood! Take them off! Take them off! Instantly her hand covered the jewel, and she shrank back alarmed. As she did so, Colonel St. John sat upright and assumed the attitude of one who addresses a large assembly. "'Awful fool!' he said with his best society manner. "'Had a life and made a mess of it. Damn fool! Won't do it again!' He paused and smiled in a conciliatory manner. "'I apologize,' he said. "'Done a lot of mischief. Made a lot of trouble. Quiet now. I apologize.' The Russian darted forward and caught the swaying body. It is the end, he said gently. End of chapter 30